following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, everybody. It is so good to be here with you guys and to bring the word. Um, Today, if you guys didn't know, part of the reason why we have this uh, family worship uh, this morning is because, I know, it feels like I'm already probably like the third person to say we're going back to school soon. <laughs> and uh, all the kids are like, stop telling us, reminding us. But um, it, it, is, it is sort of a, a, our kickoff or our, our way of um, celebrating the summer that we've had and then getting ready for a new school year. It, it, it does feel like, you know, like our calendar year starts in January, but for a lot of us who are students, I'm still a student right now too, and it feels like really the year kind of revolves around our school, and for parents too, I'm sure it feels the same with your kids going back and stuff, so um, this is sort of our, our way of celebrating and, and of initiating and, and bringing in a new year, and especially at the end of the summer, we want to, um, to recognize our college students and those who, are, who have been with us for the summer, uh, whether they're going to be returning to schools or they're going to school for the first time this fall. And just to say, you know, we want to send you with our love and just remind you that we are your community, that we, we uh, care for you, and that we'll be praying for you even while you guys are gone. Um, so that's sort of the purpose for us gathering like this. And I'm so glad to be able to have um, this space and this time for us to worship together. Um, I'm going to be sharing today uh, a message titled, um, Striving to Rejoice in the Lord. And this really is uh, something that God has put on my heart and saying this coming school year that my hope and my prayer is that we all would learn more what it is to rejoice in the Lord. I don't know how many of you guys have been spending the last couple of weeks uh, with the Olympics going on. I think the, the closing ceremonies were like just this morning, right? And um, the Olympics have been going on for the last two weeks or so in Tokyo. And leading up to these Olympic Games um, that were delayed for a year because of COVID, they were supposed to be in 2020, uh, ended up happening this summer. Um, some of uh, these fans of especially gymnastics have, have been anticipating the return of Simone Biles. To the Olympic Games because this American gymnastics phenom was the face of the Olympics in the USA. So if you saw these commercials on TV advertising for the Olympics as they were coming up and people telling you that it was coming, it was coming, it was coming, she was always in like every one of these advertisements no matter where you looked. After winning four gold medals and one bronze in the 2016 Games in Rio and accumulating 25 medals including 19 gold medals at World Championships in just five appearances, most fans of the sport and commentators were expecting Simone to dominate the field once again this year in the Olympics. But as anybody who has paid any attention to the Olympics or to even general news in the past couple of weeks knows, after just the first event of the first rotation of the team finals, Simone Biles withdrew from the rest of the team competition. And she said she wasn't even sure she was going to compete in the rest of the Olympic Games. She experienced what gymnasts call the, the twisties. I didn't know what this was until I read about it as, um, as this was coming out in the news. But basically what happens as a gymnast, from what I understand, is that as she was spinning and twisting and flipping and, and doing all this stuff in the air, that sometimes there becomes this mental block in these athletes where they start to lose their sense of where they are, right? So you can imagine if you're doing all these flips and twists in the air, that you need to know where the ground is, that when you're about to land, you know where to put your feet. 
And so every once in a while, there's this thing that happens where in your mind, you just kind of lose track of it, no matter how many times you've practiced this. And so she decided that it was going to be safest for her, that there was going to be extreme risk of serious injury if she continued to compete, so it would be safest for her to withdraw. And her withdrawal stirred a lot of controversy. And this is the reason why, not only in the sports world, but all over the news, that people were talking about the fact that she had withdrawn from the Olympics. Some people thought that she was letting her team down, letting her country down, that she was supposed to represent the USA, that she was supposed to win these medals for her country, for the pride of being an American. And they thought that she had let all of her fans down. But others were supporting her and standing up for her saying that she's somebody who is um, showing and modeling for, especially for younger women, but for all of our youth, for all athletes, that the importance of your mental and your physical health is so much more vital than a lot of teams we give credit for. Her trainers and her support staff, her coaches, and her team all agreed with her and said it was the best for her to withdraw. And for what it's worth, if Simone Biles happens to be watching this right now, if you're watching, I supported that decision too. <laughs> but one of these early, early articles that was published about this breaking news about her withdrawal really stuck out to me. In that article, in one of these press conferences, she said, I think we're a little too stressed out. We should be out here having fun, and that's just not the case. As a young athlete, I think she's like 24 years old right now, and a young athlete who has seen a lot of success in her sport. She went out there to the Olympic Games this, this summer to compete, and she said, something happened along the way where there's just been all this stress that has been added to something that I loved, something that was meant to be fun, and the fun has just been lost in it. And I think the reason why this stuck out to me is because as adults, um, as the adults in the youth ministry in, in our church have been digging into this Sermon on the Mount series on Sundays, We talk often about how God is inviting us into a richer and a fuller life in his kingdom. It isn't about God holding these demands over our head or trying to guilt us or trying to uh, subdue us into obedience, but it's an invitation to more and to better. And I think, like Simone Biles was saying, we're a little too stressed out. We should be out here having fun. That's just not the case. I think in some ways God might also echo that same sentiment to us. Not to say that God would say, like, it's all about using, like, like, fun. He might not use the word fun here because it's not about our entertainment or just, you know, doing what we enjoy or trying to escape boredom or anything like that. But I do think that Biles even wasn't really talking about just, like, doing whatever is comfortable or enjoyable in the moment, that it's all about just what's most entertaining for me. When she described gymnastics as fun, to be competing at the level that she's competing at, To be the best in the world at your craft means that she put a lot of hours and hard work, blood, sweat, and tears into becoming the athlete that she is today. She trains hard and works her butt off for this competition. And it's intense. It requires a lot of focus. It requires uh, mental acuity. It it requires uh, physical fitness. She has to fight through injuries and be willing to take risks and to face disappointment and the emotional struggle of not always coming out on top. But with all of that work that it took for her to become the gymnast that she is today, that she still was able to describe gymnastics as fun. And I think what she meant and what God might mean for us is that that fun really 
is joy. That there's a joy even in the midst of the hard work and the struggle and the competition. But when that joy becomes lost and our stress overwhelms and we lose sight of why we're doing these things in the first place, then something has gone terribly wrong. And I want to ask our congregation today for all the kids that are in the room, all the way to the adults, how many of us have lost in our life with Christ, we've lost sight of our joy in the Lord? How many of us have lost sight of the fact that the life that he's inviting us to is not just one where we're demanded to give obedience and service, where he's inviting us to a life of joy that is fuller than anything else? In Paul's letter to the, to the Philippians, he writes about this theme of joy. It's known actually as a letter of joy because of how frequently he talks about that theme throughout the, just the four short chapters. He's urging them in this letter to rejoice in the Lord, not only when things are easy, but even when things are difficult. In fact, he's writing this letter from prison to the church in Philippi. And he opens in chapter 1 by giving the church reassurances that he himself was still joyful in the midst of this trial of being in prison because he's recognized that God, through his imprisonment, was bringing the gospel forward to the prison guard, to, to the surrounding community. So he encourages the church in Philippi saying, you also ought to rejoice regardless of your circumstances. And today we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, where Paul encourages the church, even commands the church to rejoice in the Lord. And the title of our message, again, is Striving to Rejoice in the Lord. Right, rejoice. And that command frames the rest of our text. Okay? We want to keep that in mind, that this whole text is framed by this one idea of rejoicing in the Lord. And after he tells them to rejoice, then he tells us what rejoicing is not, and then what rejoicing is, and then we'll talk about how we can strive toward that goal of rejoicing in the Lord this coming year. Okay? So let's turn to the text, and we're just going to read actually the first six verses for now, and we'll come back for the rest in a little bit. So here is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It reads, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone, thinks, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Our first point today is simply that rejoicing in the Lord is not putting confidence in the flesh. The confidence in the flesh that Paul is talking about here can kind of be put into two different categories. The first category is he's talking about his, what we could call a pedigree, right? He's talking about his identity, what he was born into that makes him marked out as a special person to God. The second category would, we, can, we can say is like our religious resume, the things that he's accomplished, his, his achievements that make it so that he feels like, and other people might look at his life and say that this guy is someone who matters to God. 
And he writes that he, of all people, was born into the right family. He had the right accomplishments. So, and he's not saying that, uh, you know, rejoicing in the Lord is not putting confidence in the flesh because he's jealous of other people, as if like, well, I wish that I could put confidence in my flesh, but I don't have that sort of stuff behind me, and so I'm going to tell other people that that's not important either. But he's saying, no, I was one who, above all other people, could put confidence in my flesh, but I'm telling you that my pedigree and my resume aren't what matter. That's not what rejoicing in the Lord looks like. The qualifications that he lists here, if we were to try to draw a parallel to to today, it would be like saying, like, I was born as a pastor's kid or a missionary's kid. And on top of that, I was one of those good pastor's kids who loved going to church and, like, loved serving. I I helped the children's ministry, and I helped in my youth ministry, and and I learned how to play all these instruments so I could help with the praise team. And I was, like, a de facto, like, part of the church staff from age 7 on, right, because I just was a, a ministry family. And I memorized the most verses. I attended the most worship service. I basically just lived at church, and not just that I lived there, but I loved it. I was good at it. I held the highest positions in my youth group. I prayed the longest and the loudest. And I just want to clarify that I'm not saying that that's what makes a good pastor's kid, right? But that's what he's saying is that I have all of the accolades behind me that someone might expect. That's what somebody who rejoices in the Lord is going to live like. But he's saying, no, that's not what rejoicing in the Lord looks like. That's not what it's about. Doing all those things doesn't mean that you're rejoicing in the Lord. It doesn't mean that you're going to have joy in the Lord. And I know that there are people in this room, a lot of us in this room, who know that we can do all of those things without actually experiencing joy of Christ. I know that there are people in this room who have spent years serving in churches joylessly, where we felt like the church life was sucking and draining the life right out of us rather than filling us. We know what it's like, even if we're not serving the church, to do our quiet times and try to read the Bible. Some of our young people that are in the room too, that maybe you went to a retreat or maybe you uh, heard a sermon or maybe your parents were inviting you to do a Bible study with your family and you sat down and you tried to read your Bible, you tried to spend that time in prayer, and it was not anything close to being joyful. We know what it's like to feel the pressure of being this good Christian because of who our parents are, because of the role that they play in the church, not because of who our God is. And Paul is telling the church that putting our confidence in those things of the flesh, in our pedigree, in our resume, are not rejoicing in the Lord. So then what is? He says in the following verses, it is putting our confidence instead in knowing Christ. It is putting our confidence in knowing Christ. Rejoicing in the Lord is putting our confidence in knowing Christ. So let's continue to read in verse 7. Paul goes on to write, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So rejoicing in the Lord is putting our confidence in knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And we may be tempted to say, okay, if rejoicing in the Lord is knowing Christ, then I know how to do that. I need to go and read my Bible more. I need to go and memorize more scripture. I need to go and study the word. I need to go to church more often. And I need to learn more praise songs. And I need to pray more prayers. But when we start listing those things, we recognize that those are all the things we're talking about, about confidence in the flesh, weren't they? And now I want to be clear that I'm not saying that those things are not important. I, I'm not saying that God doesn't speak to his people and, and reveal himself to us through those things because God gave us his word so that we could know him. He gave us the gift of prayer, access to his throne so that we could be in conversation with him and know him. So what I am saying, though, is that those religious activities are not where we place our confidence. That the knowing that, that Paul is talking about in this text is not about if I study more, then I will know more. If I do more, then I will know more. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here, if we look at the actual text, we'll notice that there's the, the, the language that Paul used to describe this knowing it's two pairs. The first pair, he says that knowing Christ is gaining Christ and being found in him. Now, let's think about what that means, okay? What does gaining Christ and being found in him mean? It means that Christ is mine and I am Christ's. The knowing that he's talking about here is a relational knowing, that we belong to one another. The second pair that he gives us is that knowing Christ is knowing the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings. The power of resurrection and sharing in his sufferings. And that second pair also is about relational knowing because it means that we're sharing both in the highs, right? The power of Christ's resurrection. That was like the peak, the pinnacle. That was his most gloried moment is when he was raised from the dead and seated on his throne, when he was put on the throne that he will inhabit for the rest of eternity, that we share in that resurrection with him, but also that we share in his lowest of lows, in his suffering, in the moment when he was betrayed by his own disciples, when he was betrayed by his nation, Israel, when he was brought to the cross, by the people that he came to love and to serve. This knowing that Paul is inviting us to, that he's saying rejoicing in the Lord is about no, putting my confidence in knowing Christ, is this relational knowing. I'm his, he's mine. And also that I am with him in his highest of highs and the lowest of lows. When we're in relationship with people that we love dearly, we do life together. We share in all of those, that whole range of life experiences. That kind of knowing is not just about reading our Bibles more. It's not just about praying more and being at church more. It means that we walk with him in our actual lives. There's this man named Jim Wilder 
who calls himself a neurotheologian. He has a master's in theology, but also a PhD in clinical psychology, right? So he coined this term, neurotheologian. Dr. Steve actually pointed me to this book that, he, that was co-authored by uh, Dr. Wilder and also Michael Hendricks, who's sort of a disciple of his. And this book is titled The Other Half of Church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. And in it, Hendricks and Wilder define joy as a relational emotion. They say that joy is the feeling of being in relationship with someone who is happy to be with you. I want that thinking for a little bit. Joy is the feeling of being in relationship with someone who is happy to be with you. In other words, it's the feeling that we get when we know where we stand in a relationship with the other person and that that place that we stand with that other person is a good place. They're happy to be with us, whether things are good or bad. So rejoicing in the Lord then means we feel the feeling of being in relationship with our God who is happy to be with us. What does that feel like? I want to ask everyone in the room, we do this sometimes in our youth group, and I know some of your adults are like, dude, I'm an adult. Like, don't tell me what to do for my seat. But I'm going to ask you all kindly to close your eyes where you are. (laughs) Whether you're at home, watching online, or joining us in person, to close your eyes And I want you to try to remember a time when you knew that someone you were with was really happy to be with you. And I want you to replay that memory in your head, whatever that memory is, and not just to remember the the chronology or the event that happened, but the reason why I asked you to close your eyes is because I want you to picture this, actually picture it, and almost relive it so that you can feel what that felt like to have somebody who was really happy to just be with you. Renowned poet and civil rights activist, you can all open your eyes now, Maya Angelou once said, I've learned that people will forget what you uh, said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. In that book, The Other Half of Church, the main point that the authors are driving at is that as Christians, especially in the West, a lot of times we think about our faith, our relationship with God, in such a uh, cerebral way, in such an intellectual, rational way. But what if the reason why we struggle to know Christ relationally is because we don't actually rejoice in him? We don't feel that feeling of being with a God who is happy to be with us? What if the very thing that we need is more of that experience and that feeling of being with Christ rather than just more rational facts about him? What if we need to allow ourselves, even in these worship services, to feel that feeling all over again? When Kanye and I first got married, People ask us all the time, I'm sure those of you guys who are married went through the same experience, like there are these stages in life where people keep on asking you, like, 
this one question every time you meet somebody, right? Like if you're, if you're a senior in high school, like, oh, what schools did you apply to? Oh, where are you going to go to college? Or like once you're, you know, like graduated from school, oh, what's your next job going to be? Or like when are you going to get married? And as soon as you get married, like, oh, what's married life like? What's been new? Like how has it been different? And when they kept on asking us after we got married what was new and different about marriage, we had dated for quite a long time before we got married. So a lot of it stayed the same. But I remember that the biggest change for me was simply the fact that when I came home from work at the end of the night, that I knew that there was somebody who was waiting for me at home and who was going to be glad to have me home with her most of the time. (laughs) And that experience is an experience of joy. It's the feeling of knowing that someone's happy to be with you. In the Old Testament, that experience of God being happy to be with his people sometimes is described as God's face shining on you. So if you're reading Old Testament, you see this idea of God's face shining on you. You're like, what does that even mean? We could think of it even in English. We have something similar where we say, like, God's face is beaming as he looks at you. In Psalm 89, verses 15 to 16, the psalmist writes, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. This idea of God's face shining on us reminds me actually of this picture uh, from back in 2016 when our our first child, our son Grayson, was born. One of our friends was visiting us in the hospital. I think this was like a day or two after he was born. And she snapped this shot of me and she shared it with us later and said, like, this is like my favorite picture of Chris. And I love looking at this picture. I was like, that's kind of weird, but thank you for sharing it with me. And I love looking at this picture and Connie loves looking at this picture too because I think in that moment, it reminds me so much when I see this photo of the joy that I felt as a new dad, as a first time dad. And just looking in his bassinet and being like, oh my gosh, this baby's mine. This baby's ours. Like, I can't believe this is our child. I can't believe that God has gifted me with this privilege of being this baby's father. I still remember, as I'm looking at this photo, his smell, his cry, that newborn cry. He sounded like a little baby dinosaur. It was so weird. Just being amazed at how beautiful he was. Every little movement that he made, like it's just a twitch while he's sleeping, just like melted my heart. It was this overwhelming feeling of love and gratitude that God had gifted us with this wonderful gift. And I felt like I could stare at him all day. And after a couple of years, as Grayson grew older and he began to talk, I remember that we would lie down sometimes with him at the end of the night to put him to bed. And he would ask us to, you know, to lie in his bed with him next to him. And sometimes I would lie down on the pillow next to him, and if he was lying over here, sometimes I would, like, try to be doing something on my phone, you know, bad dad. And I'd be looking over here so that the light wasn't, like, in his face. And then he would grab me around the neck and say in Korean, he'd say, Ichupa, which means, like, look this way, right? And he'd grab me around the neck and wait until I turned my face toward him. And then he would stare at my face, and I would stare at his face. And then one of us would smile And the other person would smile. And I remember so many of those nights that in that moment that I just couldn't help and I would like pull him in close and just like hug him and just enjoy being with him. Do you know what it feels like to have God shine his face on you that way? 
to look at you with those eyes of love and of care. Maybe for some of us, that experience feels far right now. But we know that at some point in our life, we felt that. We felt that nearness of God. We felt his love and his care poured out for us. And just like I invited you guys a little bit ago to close your eyes and to remember what it felt like to have another person love us that way, I also would invite you to remember what that felt like. Because actually that, that practice of remembering is one of the practices that we can have to increase our joy. As we come upon this new school year, my hope and my prayer for all of us is that we would grow in our joy in the Lord because knowing that he's happy with us actually is what makes all of those spiritual activities that we we're talking about, reading the Bible, praying, serving in the church, singing praise songs, the joy that we experience with God is the soil out of which all of those kinds of activities that we do grows fruit. When we're lacking the joy, those things become meaningless. Those things just become a way to try to earn God. When we know that God is delighted with us, that his face is shining on us, it makes those practices so much more enriching. It becomes almost this positive feedback loop where our joy leads us to do more of those things and those things increase our joy. And I think the thing is that a lot of times when we struggle, we run back to the activities because it's easy to control. We feel like at least I can do something about this. And we feel like our emotions are harder for us to like feel joy on command. But like I'm saying, there are certain things that we can do, like remembering that will increase our joy. And God wants us to do these things because he wants, he's happy to be with us. He wants to walk with us through the highs and through the lows. And in that book that I was referencing a little bit ago by Wilder and Hendricks, they write, joy helps us to regulate our emotions and to endure suffering. Jesus refused to relinquish joy in the midst of his suffering on the cross. When we're able to stay relationally connected to others and God, we experience joy while we suffer. Joy does not remove our pain, but it gives us the strength to endure. Remember that joy is relational, so joy in suffering means that God and our community are glad to be with us in our distress. They do not allow us to suffer alone. We're able to bear our suffering like Jesus, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Hebrews 12, 2. They also describe joy as this supra-emotion, that it's not like the other emotions because we can actually feel joy, a positive emotion, while also feeling a negative emotion. In our grief, if any of you have, have been to a funeral and have, have lost somebody that you've loved, you know that at the funeral you have this community that's there with you, grieving with you. And somehow we can honestly say, accurately say, that we feel joy in being there with them even in the midst of our grief. We're not happy while we're there, necessarily. But even in the midst of grief, we can feel joy that there's a community that is here with me, that is glad to be here with me. Even when you're angry at the end of a bad day, that you can come home to a spouse or a parent or a friend and you can vent to them. And you can still feel angry, 
But you can feel a joy in knowing that somebody is walking with me through this. And that's what God desires from us. That's why Paul is inviting the church to rejoice in the Lord. In good times and in bad. In the final verses of our passage today, in verses 12 to 14, he writes, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, look, I'm asking you to rejoice in the Lord, but I'm telling you that even for me, that this is still something that I have to daily work at. This is not something that I've arrived at now. And every new school year will bring its own new and exciting opportunities, but, it's also, but also its own challenges. And as I mentioned at the beginning, today's send-off service is especially meant for our college students, for our freshmen this year. We've only got three freshmen that uh, are seniors from high school that graduated this, this fall that will be freshmen this, this past spring that will be freshmen in the fall. And they're represented by our, our brother Ian Joe, who's here with us today. The other two couldn't make it. He's going to be attending Brown, and, and not only for him, but also for all of our college students who'll be leaving home um, in a couple of weeks. Not only for them, but also for all of our elementary school students and our middle school students and our high school students who are going to be returning to your schools. We hope and we pray that this year, as you go back to your school, that you would grow in your joy in the Lord. We've already talked about some of the ways that we can do that. Experiencing God's face shining on you. Sometimes that happens in personal worship, but sometimes that happens through others in your community. Another way we increase our joy is by remembering, again, those moments of God's delight. Not just in your head, but again, even taking in this practice of closing your eyes and feeling what it felt like for God to delight in you. And going through the highs and the lows of life with Christ because we know that he's glad to be there with us. In the book of Numbers, God commands Aaron to give a particular blessing to the people of Israel that I think is fitting for us today. I'll close with this. Numbers 20, or chapter 6, verses 22 to 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. This time, I'm going to actually invite our brother Ian to the front. And as a congregation, I'm going to ask us um, to bless him in prayer. And not only him, but Ian, you're sort of going to represent all of our kids at our church. There's a lot of kids. <laughs> but I do want to ask you guys to pray for, uh, for Ian and for Lucas and Catherine, who are freshmen and are going off to college this, this fall. Um, but also for, like I said earlier, all of our other college students and for all of our students who are going back, I'm going to ask you all where you are to go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me from your seat. If you feel like it, you can feel free to reach out your hand uh, toward, toward the front here. Uh, don't have to. Let's go ahead and take a moment as a community and pray a prayer of blessing. Pray that God would increase their joy. I'm going to give you guys a minute or two and then I'll, I'll pray for us.
God, we do want to lift up all of our students in our church. We want to especially lift up um, this freshman class, uh, Ian and Catherine and Lucas, and, and, uh, and our college students who are going to be going far away from home and will be returning to their campuses. God, we pray that in this coming school year that we would grow in our rejoicing, that we would learn what it is to strive for more rejoicing like Paul did. God, as we do that, that it wouldn't be just about engaging in these practices or just doing those right things, but Lord God, that we would feel your delight in us. We would experience your nearness and your love over us. God, we pray that you would provide them with communities on their campuses where they can grow, where they can flourish, where they can experience from their interpersonal relationships as well your love over them. Father, we pray that you would remind them in the hard times, in the moments where they struggle, in the doubts that they have about you and about themselves and about their futures. God, that you are a God who is happy to be with us, not only in the highs, not only when we're doing everything right, but Lord God, even through our lows, that you are glad to share in our, in our trials and our sufferings. Father, let our recognition of your face shining on us be the fuel for our worship. Let it be the, uh, the engine for our community. Father, we pray that this school year that we would experience radical transformations in our lives, that we would not be living in this half-hearted, half-minded Christianity where we, everything that we do is just in our heads. It's all about what's rational, what we know in our minds. But Lord God, that we would experience you, that we would know you relationally, that we'd be walking with you every day, Lord. God, we pray that you would make your face to shine upon us and upon them. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.